This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, we ask that you would increase our faith by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that our lives may be shaped more and more into the image of your Son, our Lord. Amen. We've all heard the saying that money can't solve your problems. But if you're at all like me, then you've had some days in your life, some very clear moments where you thought, maybe not, but I'd like to try. <laughs> I think it could solve a lot of them. Like that unexpected trip to the, mechan the mechanic because your muffler decided to fall off in Swickley, transforming your Honda Civic into an airplane trying to take flight. It's hard in those moments to not think, if only I had more money. Because if you have money, you can own a nice house. You can send your kids to a nice school. You can drive a car that's not constantly breaking down. You can pay off your debts. You can afford the medical bills, no matter how large they might be. And let's not forget about all the fun that you can have. You can afford to travel, to eat out, to buy that expensive bottle, or if you're in more of my age bracket, the box of wine. You can afford to pay for a personal trainer if you want. You can buy what you want when you want it. Money does seem to be at the root of our happiness, of our self-fulfillment, of our personal freedom. It allows us to be who we want to be. And this kind of freedom, the freedom where we can do what we want, when we want it, with nothing holding us back, this is our current American dream. This is our current ideal. But what if, what if this ideal, what if this idea of trying to gain enough money to have personal freedom, to have security, what if this very idea is in conflict with the abundant life that Jesus desires for us, with the abundant life that he offers us? What if in our pursuit of personal freedom and satisfaction, in our pursuit of wealth, we miss out on God's gift of generosity and of being a part of a community that is generous, that is life-giving? In our passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul is going to challenge some of our very cultural values, our ways of thinking about money, about generosity, about community, and instead, he is going to invite us to experience the grace of God in even deeper ways. But, but before we get there, um, I just want to say this. This message is not me or church leadership trying to twist your arm, trying to get you to give. The conclusion of my sermon is not going to be, so now we're going to pass the basket, right? That's, that's not what this is for. Um, but I understand that for many of us, when a preacher starts talking about money, little alarm bells start to go off. 
So I'm going to set you at ease. That is not the goal. The goal is that we would open God's word, that we would see what he says about generosity, about, about giving, and that we would allow his spirit to reveal to us what that might look like in our own lives. So, now back to our text. Before we can really understand the weight of what Paul is saying, we need to back up and get a little bit of context. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the conversation is about a gift. It's about a collection for the, that the churches in Asia were putting together in order to aid the believers in Jerusalem. The believers in Jerusalem were suffering under a severe famine or what one writer described as a massive empire-wide food crisis, the longest and most devastating famine that occurred under Roman rule. For perspective, uh, based on some like Egyptian finance records and the prices of grain and things like that, we can assume that this famine affected the people of the Roman Empire from the year 8045 all the way until 8063. And while the entire empire was suffering, it was believed that the famine hit Judea particularly hard, and the believers in Jerusalem were in trouble. And so it was out of love for their sisters and their brothers in Christ that the churches in Asia were pooling their resources in order to help. It's to this end that we read in verses 1 and 2 that the Macedonian Christians have given so generously. And what is so powerful about the giving of the Macedonians is that Paul writes in verse 2, if you want to follow along, for during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What a powerful image, right? The overflow of wealth, of generosity, not from a place of plenty and of comfort, not from a place of peace and prosperity, but from their abundant joy and their extreme poverty. These are not the people that you or I would turn to in a fundraising campaign. These are not the big donors. These people may not even have been financially stable in and of themselves. Most likely, these are men and women suffering in the midst of the very same famine that has plagued the empire and who Paul says are giving out of their extreme poverty. And this is important for us to notice because the call to be generous is not only a call for the 1%. It's not only a call for those who make so much money. Usually that just means more than us or those who are living in what we deem as comfort. We're all called to be generous. We're all called to be generous with what we have. Now apparently, Paul, uh, well sorry, Paul turns his attention now to the Corinthians, who apparently, um, during an earlier visit from Titus, decided that they wanted to be a part of this gift. They expressed those intentions. They even began to gather up resources to give. But it's now a year later, and they're not ready. The money's not there. They haven't gathered it together. For some reason, their desire has dwindled. I mean, the obvious question is why? Why did this happen? And 
The short answer is we're not really sure. It's pretty obvious that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians had become pretty um, tense for a lot of reasons. So maybe they were frustrated at Paul, and that's why they weren't giving. I think it's fair to speculate, too, that the same famine that was ravaging the entire empire was also affecting them. And if that even played a small role in the Corinthians' hesitation to give, that's something that you and I can relate to. You and I, who are sitting here in 2021, we, we understand the weight of a, in their mind, global, right? And in our mind, our reality, a global problem. During this pandemic, some of you experienced that blinding anxiety, that gut-wrenching fear of, of maybe not having enough, of maybe losing your job or losing your job, of having some of your investments tank, of having some of your retirement taken We've all experienced that gut, that gut feeling of, oh my goodness, what if I don't have enough? What if I can't provide for my family? What if I don't make it through this? To some degree, we get exactly how the people in Rome were probably feeling. But whatever the reason, whatever the reason the Corinthians did, they turned their back on the, the believers in Jerusalem and they turned their back on the Apostle Paul. And so he's challenging them. He's challenging them to live up to their commitment, which on one hand makes perfect sense to us, right? They said they would give. He's saying, just do what you said you were going to do. But on the other hand, as I was preparing this message, I, and I started thinking more critically about this text, it made me feel a little uneasy. It felt like Paul might be trying to manipulate the Corinthians into giving by saying, look at the Macedonians, right? And we all know that person, the person who says, hey, I think maybe you should do this. It's just a suggestion, and yet you know, you know that it is not a suggestion. They're trying to twist your arm. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he saying, hey, look, do you guys remember the Macedonians? They're broke, really broke. They gave all this money. Speaking of money, you guys said that you were going to give. Do you remember that? Just throwing it out there, maybe, do it. Right? Is that what he's doing? Is he guilting them? Is he manipulating them? And I want to say not at all. No, Paul's goal is not manipulation. His goal is invitation. Well, how so? How so? Five times in our, in our passage this morning, Paul uses the Greek word charis, which is the word we usually translate grace, um, or it could be translated gift. This is the word that we often will translate grace, but I, I want us to think about it because that word grace holds so much Christian weight to us. We, we hear that word through the lens of our faith, and yet it was a very common word. It was a very normal word. And when we, when we read that word as gift, I think we see some interesting things in our passage this morning. Some profound things. First, we see in verses 1 and 2 that Paul sees the Macedonians' generosity as a gift from God. But surprisingly, 
It's not a gift from God to the church in Jerusalem, but Paul references it as a gift from God to the Macedonians themselves. In other words, there is something about generosity, about giving of ourselves for others, that is actually a gift to us, that is a blessing to us. And many of us have experienced this. This is why we say it's better to give than to receive. But I think Paul would rephrase that. I think he would say, no, to give is to receive. And it's to receive a gift from God. So of course he wants the Corinthians to give their gift because he wants them to receive the same gift that the Macedonians had received from God. And he wants us to receive that same gift. It's not manipulation. It's an invitation. Second, Paul uses this word grace or gift to speak of what Christ has done for us. In verse 9, we read, or we read, for you know the generous act, right there, that's the word, the generous act, the generous gift of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Christ laid down. He laid aside his riches and became poor. This is Jesus, whose glory filled the throne room in Isaiah's vision, who was born of a virgin, who lived a life of poverty, of rejection, and of social shame that eventually ended in him handing himself over to be murdered on the cross. And why did he do this? He did this so that you and I may be made rich, so that we may become children of God, that we might share in all of who he is, in his very riches. And Christ is the ultimate example of how to give is to receive. Like it says in Hebrews 12 too, it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. Even Christ gave, knowing that in giving of himself, of giving his very life, he would receive something far greater. Namely, that he would receive us back to himself. And so Paul's invitation is to be blessed as we walk in the way of Christ, which leads us to our third way that Paul uses this word, grace or gift, and that is to invite us like Christ, to participate in a community that is radically shaped by the gift of Jesus. There's a biblical scholar named John Barclay who has done some incredible work in helping us understand what gift-giving was like in Jesus' day and in Paul's day. And he points out that our modern notion of gift-giving or of giving a gift with no strings attached was not at all how the Apostle Paul or how Jesus would have seen giving gifts. No, he says, and I quote, normally in the ancient world, you give gifts in order to create relationships, in order to bind people and societies together. In other words, there was an expectation and an anticipation that when I give a gift to you, we are now in relationship. We are now in the kind of relationship that is reciprocal. 
This seems to be why Paul saw no conflict in saying that what Jesus has done for us is a gift, and then calling us in response to lay down our own lives. Because to be given a gift was to enter into a binding relationship. It was to enter into a reciprocal relationship. And so our, the call on us to be generous, the call to generosity, it's not a call to a one-way gift. It's a call to a community of self-giving love, of self-giving generosity. And if we take this view of generosity, of gift-giving, and we look at the rest of our passage for this morning, we're going to see two clear challenges to our modern way of living and thinking, to our modern Western way of living and thinking, at least. And the first is this. Number one, this type of generosity, it calls us to see ourselves not namely as individuals, but as members of a community that God will provide for. Remember back with me to the very, very early days of the pandemic when everyone was a little afraid and no one really knew what was going on, where we all realized, I think I need to buy a mask, and then started to wonder, I don't know where to buy a mask, and where the most valuable commodity in our entire nation, for some reason, became toilet paper. (laughs) Toilet paper. Those weeks of panicked toilet paper buying, they revealed something about humanity, and I think they revealed something about Western culture, and that is this. We namely see ourselves as individuals, and we view the world through this idea of scarcity, that there's not enough good to go around. What do I mean? Well, I mean we believe that there is only so much of a good thing, and so I need to get my own, right? I need to protect myself, my family. It's me against you, it's us against the world. That's how we tend to look at things. And it's silly when we're talking about toilet paper. But when this scarcity mindset comes together with a belief that money might actually buy us happiness, self-fulfillment, when this belief that it's me against everyone else comes together, no wonder it's a struggle for us to be generous. And yet, to these concerns, this is exactly what Paul is writing in verses 13 through 15. He says, I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it's a question of fair balance, your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. What if we saw ourselves this way? Not through the eyes of individualism or scarcity, but through the eyes of a community of faith. Faith that if we give with a Christ-like generosity, if we look for the ways in which we can bless and care for those around us, that God will provide for our needs. Or as Barclay puts it, What if the rich young ruler had sold all that he had and given to the poor? What would have happened to him? Would he have been resigned to begging on the streets? Would he have become one of the poor that he had just given to? Or would he have entered into a community of faith? A community where he would be seen and cared for 
a community where God would meet his needs. This type of generosity, it calls us to see ourselves not namely as individuals, but as a community that God will provide for. That's, that's the first challenge, I think, to us this morning. And the second is this. This type of generosity calls us to see ourselves as needy. The other way that Paul's understanding of gift giving is countercultural is that it forces us to admit that we too are needy. Sure, perhaps right now, you are the one who is in need and I'm the one who has plenty, plenty of money, plenty of time, plenty of friends, plenty of fill in the blank. But there may very well be a day when that is reversed, when the tables are turned. And so how might I think to treat you the way that I would want to be treated? But not only that, this, this, view, this way of seeing need, of seeing community, it keeps us from riding in on our white horse. To recognize and to believe that we are in fact needy people, um, it'll help us to see our, I'm sorry, it'll help us to realize that just because I have something to offer you does not mean that you do not have something to offer me. Maybe your needs and my own are not the same. Maybe they're not in competition with one another. Maybe as I provide for your needs, God can use you to provide for my needs. Now this is very convicting, especially for me and I think for all of us as we think about the way we talk about giving to those who are, you know, quote, needy, to the homeless, to those from poor neighborhoods, to the sick or to the dying, to, the, to those who are not well. We can begin to talk about them as the needy and us as the givers, the ones who can provide. And this example hit me hard this morning as I was preparing this and looking over my notes, I realized um, I've gotten the gift this summer of serving as a chaplain in the hospitals. Um, and every time I tell people that, they say, that's so great. You're going to do so much good. Those people will be so much better for you being there. And you know what? I pray and hope that that is at least a little true, that God is using me. But it is not a one-way relationship. Every time I walk into a room, that person has something to offer me. I have been amazed by the faith, by the encouragement, by the stories of the people that I've gotten to talk to this summer already. They are not the needy, and I am the provider. We're both the needy. And, and this relationship that we have is reciprocal. Money, money can't solve all of our problems, um, it's true. And it's because we're made for so much more than what uh, we as Westerners think is the good life, is, is the ideal. We're made to be in tune with the heart of our God who is a self-giving, generous God. We're made to be a part of a community where we care for one another. And so I wanna leave us this morning with three questions to ponder. Number one, where might God be calling you and calling me to be more generous in our lives? Maybe it's not with money. Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's with your time. 
But where might the Spirit be calling us to be more generous? Number two, where might He be calling us to see ourselves as more needy, as needing the community of God? And number three, how might we press into that community more? How might we receive this gift of God's grace, this gift of generosity? I'll leave you with those. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us yourself. Please teach us to be a people of Christ-like generosity, that we might know life and that we may know life abundantly. Amen.